0: You're younger than 40, you probably have not heard that song before. It was played a lot in the 80s. And let me tell you what you were just hearing and what you were singing. Um, El is God. El Shaddai is God Almighty. Er Erkam Kana Adonai is God Most High. In the midst of that praise, that song recognizes that although God is almighty and God is most high, he's the God who sees. He sees everything going on in your life, amen? He sees everything going on, and yet he reveals himself throughout Scripture constantly as being the almighty God, in control of everything, sovereign over everything, with a plan for everything, and the God who really sees. You're going to see a great import of that today as we work through Matthew 24. And I'm going to encourage you, if you have a Bible with you, to open it up to the book of Matthew. Matthew 24, whether you're virtual or you're in person, it's really a, a strong component for you to be able to follow along in your own copy of God's Word. Maybe you have it electronically or you have a hard copy, but it would be things that you'll be, it'll give you the opportunity to write things down and circle things and really follow along. But if you're new to New Hope, you'll also see the verses up on the screen that will help you as well. This last week, I found myself in a bit of a conundrum related to this passage because it's such a wrestling match to make these things familiar enough to ourselves that we can understand what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about the second coming when he's talking about the last days. And I told you last week in these four remaining parables in the parable series, that's what he does. He talks about the second coming uh, extensively, the last days. here's the conundrum I found myself in. Um, I was listening to the news a lot and I kept hearing this phrase GameStop come up all the time, (laughs) all right? And in the midst of GameStop coming up, and I knew it as a store, and I knew it as a place where you could trade games and buy games, and yet I kept hearing it in the news, and I didn't understand the phraseology that was being used. And I said to my wife on Tuesday or Wednesday, I need to get a hold of one of my friends who really understands stock trading and finances, and ask them to explain to me what it means to short a stock. I don't understand. What does it mean to short a stock? And it kept coming up and coming up and coming up and it was kind of polluting the airwaves it was on so much. And then it hit me. I realized in the same way that those of us who are average Joes in the world and we don't understand maybe the language of the financial trading markets, many people, when they come to something like the second coming of God and, and the return of Jesus, they would look at it like, um, what? How do I put these words together? So Here's what happened for me with GameStop. I kept hearing words in the English language that I could understand the words individually, but when a financial person began constructing them together, I couldn't make sense of the sentences they were using. It didn't make any sense to me. And I'm reading through this stuff on the second coming that I've got to explain to you this morning and help us to be in this place where we understand what Jesus was trying to get across with the same thought that if you're new to church or maybe even if you've grown up in church, you may read these things and go, what? I don't get it. What are they saying here? Well, we need to pray that the Holy Spirit would give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning, especially as Jesus wants us to understand about the things of the second coming. If God didn't want you to know these things, he would have never told you. And so there's a reason it's in the Bible. It's our job to study it and ask the Holy Spirit to be our teacher. Would you join me in praying about that? Let's go earnestly before God on that issue. Father, we come to uh, what could be very difficult material, and if we allow ourselves to just check out, we'll miss something that you wanted us to know. So we come before you in this moment, having worshiped you and having understood more about you to some degree through worship, we come now wanting to understand a whole lot more about who we are before you and what you want us to know about you in this passage in Matthew 24. And we realize we could study it and study it, Father, and never get anything out of it if it wasn't your Holy Spirit who takes the scales off our eyes and allows us to really see. Allow us to see you, the God who really sees, and that you have a plan and you have a purpose in history. Reveal it to us now, Father. Show us these things as you had Matthew write them down. We pray for this in Jesus' majestic name. And God's people said, Amen. Perhaps you've heard the term parousia. Parousia. It's a Greek word. It's in your notes this morning. If you haven't downloaded those yet, go ahead and do that, or maybe you grabbed a hard copy. You'll see this word up on the screen, the word parousia, and it's a Greek word that's a definition for what Jesus is talking about here when he talks about the second coming. It's it's talking about him being near, and he uses this term over and over again because he wants us to understand that Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again regardless of global readiness. Jesus is coming again because it was predestined in the wisdom of God in eternity past. Jesus is coming again. And the only thing that we can say with certainty about the parousia is that it will happen. What we can do, though, what we can do is be aware and watchful. That's what Jesus calls us to to be watchful of the times that we live in, and alert. That's what Jesus commands us to do. If you're a follower of Jesus, he commands you to be aware, and as a result, that you would allow that reality to impact your life. So it would change your behavior, it would affect the way you live, the decisions that you make. These remaining parables that Jesus tells, as I said, are all based on the last days, the second coming. At least the ones that we're going to finish out with, and they're told in the last couple days of his life. uh, This particular day, it's Wednesday. He's going to be crucified in two days. He hasn't been arrested yet, but that's coming very, very soon. And as he wakes, makes his way out of the temple complex, he climbs what we call today the Mount of Olives, a high hill overlooking the city of Jerusalem. And while he does that, the disciples come to him and they ask this particular question that you see on the screen in Matthew 24:3. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And they're asking because Jesus has hinted that something is coming. They're asking because it's the question, the question that's been asked for 2,000 years. Is this it? Could Jesus come back tomorrow? Is this really the end? Well, Jesus answers their questions first with signs. He says, you you look for these signs, and these signs will be the indicator. And if you didn't get a chance to read Matthew 24 this week, I've broken it out for you on the screen this morning just with some excerpts from Matthew 24 so you can see some of the signs that he was talking about. These are some of the things that he said to watch for. Verse 7, nation will rise against nation. There will be famines and earthquakes. Verse 9, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Verse 10, many will fall away and betray one another. Verse 11, false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Verse 12, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Verse 21, then there will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. In verse 22, and if those days had not been cut short, no human would be saved. And he doesn't mean eternal salvation when he says that. He's talking about humans living physically, biologically living. No humans would remain alive on the planet if those days were not cut short. Well, he's talking about the tribulation. And then we come back to where we left off last week, verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Now, when we ended last week, we didn't get to spend a lot of time in verse 36. I want to drill down with you into that verse just for a moment so we really catch what's being communicated here. It's an extraordinary statement, a direct statement right from God himself, Jesus talking about Jesus and saying this. He's saying, I don't know. I don't know when the time will be. It immediately causes you to think, what? He's God. How can he not know? Why would he say that? Well, I want to circle back with you to that statement in just a moment. We really want to catch how he's saying it to be sure to understand this. That the second coming takes place at an unknown time could only be true. If, in fact, life seems to be going on as normal, if people are marrying and giving in marriage, if people are going to work every day, buying food, buying things for their home, carrying on life, studying, going to school, it could only be true if people are gonna be caught by surprise that things are going on pretty much as usual. If it's unknown, people will be unprepared. So, Jesus says in verse 36, let's bear down in the statement, of that day and hour, no one knows. So, he's told, told them so far that once the signs begin, you'll know his arrival is near because the purpose of the signs is to make it known. But even during those sign days, quote unquote, even during those particular days, the precise day will not be known. So, it leads us to the question, Why? Why not just tell us? Why not make it obvious for humanity when this is going to happen if it's such a huge global event? I've come to this conclusion. God built us, so God knows us. And he knows us intimately well. And he knows exactly how we would react if we actually knew what was going to happen. In the category, and put it in two categories, if you will, in the category of those who don't believe or maybe not yet believers, their response specifically would be to put off the receiving of Jesus. You may hear about Jesus, may hear that He can forgive sins, may hear that He's waiting to give eternal life, but an individual who's not believing may want to put that off to the very, very last moment and say, well, just before He comes, then I'll make a decision, then I'll be in relationship. Well, the reality is, even if they knew someone knew the exact time of Christ's coming and His appearing and they were certain that they would live that long. They'd be fooling themselves into thinking that they're going to make a decision in that moment. See, the fact that they would put off trusting Jesus would be a strong indicator. There's no sincere desire in the heart to trust Jesus as Savior. In the category of believers, what about believers? Well, I think in the category of believers, if we knew the precise time and had the knowledge of the actual day that he was going to arrive, we'd become incredibly lazy, spiritually checked out, like, I got my ticket punched, I'm just waiting for the day. But he doesn't tell us so that we stay inspired and moved and actually take on life the way he encourages us to do. Those aren't the only two categories he spoke of, though. He also spoke of the angels. He said, no one knows on this planet, not the angels in heaven. Well, that's a strange thought, because the angels are in an intimate relationship with God. They're aware and constantly around the throne. They're in his presence how could they not know? They're going to actually be used to separate the elect from the non-saved, Scripture says. God will use them in the last days. But even though they're on what you might think of as the inner circle, they're not on the inner circle list. God doesn't tell them either until He needs to put them into action. And then He makes this huge statement. No one knows, you see this on the screen, nor the sun. How do I understand that? He's God. Jesus tells the disciples that there are things that he doesn't know. How can that be? Immediately, we have to remember context. I learned in Bible college, keep the text in context. What's the context? Well, the context is the incarnation. God has taken on human flesh. He's one of us. Although Jesus is fully God, he's also fully man. The old timers used to say, very God of very God. Perhaps you haven't heard that term in a long time. Very God of very God. We talk about this a lot around Christmas time. God the Son became Jesus the man. It's the condescension of God to leave the throne of glory and take on human flesh, condescend to become one of us. And the Bible is very, very clear that during this period of time, when he took on flesh, he voluntarily restricted his use of attributes. And we would have to say, that's something I don't quite grasp. How does that work? It's like a GameStop moment. I can't make sense of this. And it's even further complicated by Philippians 2. Let me show you this on the screen. Philippians 2.6, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Now, what that's telling you biblically is that Jesus didn't cling to his godness, his God attributes, if you will, during the time of his humanity. And it makes you want to stop and just say, thank you. You just want to throw up a silent cheer like, God, thank you for doing that for me. Maybe right now you just just want to whisper that. Thank you, God. You left everything for me. And that's what Philippians 2 is emphasizing here. Understand, in order for Jesus to fully be man... To live life like we live life, he willingly gave up glory. So it's not that he lost his attributes. Rather, what Scripture indicates is he laid them aside and only manifested those attributes in agreement with the Father. That's why you find him saying in Scripture to the disciples, I can only do what the Father shows me to do. I only do what the Father tells me to do. And every time you see him going in prayer, it's asking God to work through him. Jesus showed omniscience constantly. Let me show you an example of that on the screen. John 2, 25. He needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. You and I don't know that. We're not omniscient. We don't know those things. So when Nicodemus came to him at night and said, what do I have to do to be born again? Jesus already knew what was in his heart. When Judas betrayed Jesus, Jesus knew beforehand that Judas was going to betray him. How then if he laid all those powers aside? Because God still worked through him. God revealed things to him. But there were self-imposed restrictions in his human knowledge. Because according to Philippians 2, he emptied himself. So his knowledge was restricted to the things the Father wanted him to know during his earthly days. That means he learned just like you learn. He experienced things. He grew in wisdom, Scripture says. He increased in wisdom. How is that possible if he's God? Because he emptied himself. So we're looking at evidence of that right here. Therefore, on this day before his arrest, it's not known to him. He doesn't know the precise time that he would return. So he would say to the disciples, not even the Son of Man knows. My personal conviction is, though, and I think I could back this up, and I, I will back it up from Scripture. My personal conviction is that all those capacities, once the resurrection took place, were his again. He completed the mission. It appears that you see a glimpse of that when Jesus is in the garden and he's praying just at the moment he's about to be arrested. Look with me on the screen, John 17, 3. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Restore it to me, Father." Return me back to that position. Give me back that omniscience, that omnipresence, that all capacity of God attributes. So now, in the midst of what we're reading here today, we see that Jesus reinforces that statement, but then gives a partial answer to the when question. Okay, we've talked about the signs. When is this going to happen? Verse 37, for the coming of the Son of Man is emphasizing it's going to happen, the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Uh, if you know me at all, you know I cannot let a verse like that just slide by. It's like, what? How can you read about Noah in the New Testament and just let that one slip on past you? We've got to bear down on that. And why is Jesus using that event to describe the last days Because there is no other global event that's ever happened on this planet that matches the catastrophe of what Jesus is describing in the last days. There has been nothing other than the global flood that has done that kind of cataclysmic disruption that's going to match what Jesus is trying to get across. So step back with me to the time of Noah. Let's understand what Jesus is saying here. Noah finishes all the construction exactly the way that God commanded him to do. Everything is prepared. His family steps into the ark, and he steps into the ark. And we're told by the Bible that the God shuts the door. And in the day that the flood begins, there is a raging torrent that is unleashed upon this planet. And the waters of the deep break up. And there is a shift in the tectonic plates of the surface of this earth. And it brings massive, global quaking. In turn, that triggers tsunamis all over the planet. There's a collapsing of the water column in the sky over the top of the earth. It combines with the breaking up of the fountains of the deep. And together, those deliver a swift, surging deluge of fast-moving rivers of water all over the surface of this planet vegetation, boulders, human life, animal life, everything swept up in the current, flooding over the flatlands, and it's crushing everything in its wake, leaving unprecedented global destruction. And if you think that's just my take on it, read Genesis 6 with me. Look with me on the screen at this. Genesis 6:11. On the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were opened. Verse 20, the water prevailed 15 cubits higher, and the mountains were covered. All flesh that moved on the earth perished birds and cattle and beasts of every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth, and all mankind. Of all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life died. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land. And from God's own mouth, God the Son becomes Jesus the man. And from God's own mouth, we get a very clear biblical understanding that not only did Jesus see the events of Noah's time as a factual experience, but also we realize there's this very long, long period of time of Noah preparing for what ultimately would be catastrophe. Followed by rapid and very swift judgment upon the earth. And that's why Jesus moves forward with this statement in verse 38. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And the Old Testament tells us that life pre flood, before the deluge came upon the earth, people were exceedingly great. Individuals were great in size, great in intellect. They were not cavemen, individuals with intellect, but they were also great in sin, enormous sin, and that sin brought flood upon the earth. Here let me back that up with Scripture, Genesis 6:5. "The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually." or verse 11. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. But Jesus' point here is not the degree of their sin. That's not what he's going after. He's talking about the reality that they're living life out as normal. Did you notice as he described this, these are not the actions of sinful stuff, it's the stuff of life. They're eating and drinking and giving in marriage and marrying one another. No community can exist without those things. People are buying groceries. People are going to work. People are going to school. And Jesus says it's going to be just like that time. In the days before Jesus' return, the global population will be following the same ordinary pursuits, which is absolutely stunning to me because despite the distress on the planet... All the things that Jesus said will be the signs of the sun darkening and the moon darkening and the stars falling and global famines and earthquakes, despite all of that, people are going to be carrying out normal functions, eating and drinking and marrying. How will they be able to pursue normal life with the Antichrist in power? I can't imagine. It's fascinating to me that in the midst of this massive distress, normal life patterns are still going to exist. That speaks of something. That speaks of really, really, really hard hearts. Let's just go back to the time of Noah then. Why did people have such a hard heart at that time? What kept people from listening to Noah's witness and repenting and saying, I've got to fix my life here. I'm totally out of whack with God. I've got to change things. Why did they not? Did you know that Noah was a preacher of righteousness? Righteousness. Look with me on the screen, 2 Peter 2.5. God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness. So he's not just an ark builder. He's not just a carpenter. He's got a hammer in one hand and the word of God in the other hand, and he's talking to people about the things of God. So how do you explain the hard hearts? Well, it appears they were so, so self-absorbed in the things of this world that they had zero interest in the things of God. Does that sound like a time that you're familiar with? So absorbed with the things of this planet that there's zero time for the things of God. Jesus says it'll be just like that period of time. Now, in the days of Noah, they had never seen rain. And so they had never known calamity of a flood. They couldn't possibly have assembled that. The book of Genesis is very clear that rain had not fallen upon the earth. The grounds became like a sprinkling system and there was almost like a greenhouse canopy over this planet. It it allowed a vapor to produce all the moisture necessary for life. That greenhouse-type environment provided great growth. And because they'd never seen calamity, they'd never seen a flood, here's the thought process that goes with it. The idea that a flood could happen well, that's a stretch. Like, we've never seen a flood. How is it possible Like something like that could occur? We've never seen it. That's really far-fetched, Noah. That can't be. Well, Jesus indicates that during the time of the tribulation, that humanity will be so hardened and there will be so much sin at such a level, it will be like nothing else ever in history before on this planet. Because that's the case, that must mean that each succeeding generation leading up to the last days becomes harder and harder and harder against the things of God. It doesn't just happen overnight. Each succeeding generation must become more resistant to the things of God and must be rejecting it more, actually becoming less godly to the point where sin is called good and good is called evil. Ultimately to the point where the Holy Spirit is removed from the planet. What a horrible time to be here. During the tribulation period, we're told, according to Scripture, that the Holy Spirit is actually removed. Let me show you this, kind of a long passage. Just bear with me. It comes from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul's writing this to the church at Thessalonica, and he says it this way. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, jump over to verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. That's the Antichrist, by the way, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And here it comes, verse 6, and you know what is restraining him now, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is holding back the Antichrist from his appearance. You know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way, meaning the Holy Spirit, and then the Antichrist will be revealed. The Bible goes on to say in the book of Revelation at the same time that demons will be unleashed from hell and they will inflict untold agony upon this planet such has never been experienced on the face of this earth before that period of time. So vile and so preoccupied will people be with all forms of pleasure that they will begin trying to explain away what they're seeing in the end times except for turning to the word of God. And if you think that's not possible, think this through with me. At the first coming of Jesus, when he first arrived on this planet, people refused the very thing they're seeing right in front of their eyes. Now, check this. He's casting out demons. He's healing the blind. He's raising people back from death, eliminating all forms of disease. God in the flesh is in front of them, and they accuse him of acting by the power of Satan. Uh, if that isn't far enough to go, then they begin saying in the book of John, when Jesus restores eyesight to someone who was born blind, they can't explain what happened. And so they turn on the parents. They turn on the parents and saying, well, you don't even know your own son then. Well, who would tell their parent, the parents of a son born blind they don't even know their own son? See, humanity's propensity to explain away the extraordinary is exactly what we do because of a desire to reject God. The Bible actually says in the last days they will curse God rather than looking to God for an explanation. So humanity's going to look for answers, but they're not going to look to God. Put this back in context with Noah. People can see the ark right in front of them. They have visual, physical evidence that God is announcing something. And there's no doubt some people scorned Noah, and there's some people that ridiculed, and I'm sure there's people who were curious. They're like, what you doing, Noah? Explain this to us. We don't understand it. The ark is right in front of their eyes, yet they fully deny God's demand of repentance. That's why Genesis says their hearts are completely filled with evil all day long. All they thought about was evil. And because they did not share the truth of God, they did not believe what was coming. Well, that explains Jesus' next statement in verse 39. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. My Bible says the same thing that your Bible says. My Bible says that every person knows in their heart that God Is. That's why when I have conversations with individuals who tell me they have family members or friends who are atheists, I'll tell them, and it catches people by surprise when I say it, but I'll say directly to their face, that person whom you know that claims to be an atheist according to God's word is a liar. Because God says He has placed the knowledge of God in everyone's heart. Now, someone may say publicly that they're not comfortable with the thought of God, or they're not sure that God exists. But for someone to say God does not exist means they're arguing with God's word and God, I believe, over man. And God's word says he placed the knowledge of God in everyone's heart. So either God's lying or that person is lying. And I think that they deal with it at two in the morning, but never want to deal with it during the light of day. In Noah's day, we've got individuals who marginalized and ignored what Noah was saying, it's right there in front of their eyes. Now, no doubt some had their own view of a God, small g-o-d, their own view of God, thinking Noah's God is irrelevant. I promise you, ignoring the God of the Bible doesn't do any good when floods come into your life. Personal opinions don't make for very good flotation devices when the storms come. Our world is full of personal opinions about God. But there's only one source to accurately understand God, and it's his word. But Jesus says the people of Noah's day were so untouched by God's truth, they didn't even be able to put the pieces together. They did not understand until. And then he uses the word flood, kataklusmos. In the English language, we have the word cataclysm. Cataclusmos means the deluge, the flood, the destruction of everything. And that, Jesus says, will be the exact same attitude before the coming of the Son of Man. And very quickly, he goes into the parable. It moves just as quickly as it's written. It's just a couple statements. Matthew 24, verse 40, there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Verse 41, two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. In a very straightforward way, Jesus is speaking of salvation and judgment one will be taken to judgment, one will be left to enter the kingdom. Or if you like it the other way around, one will be taken to the kingdom and one will be left to judgment. He's talking about the same separation we're gonna look at in two weeks when Jesus has before him the sheep and the goats. It's one of the scariest passages in the entire Bible when individuals stand before him and tell him all the things they did in his name and he says to them, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. We'll look at that in just a couple of weeks, but that's the same separation they're talking about here. The, the picture is this. Two women would be family members. They sit opposed to each other on either side of a grinding stone. And these grinding stones were pulled with their arms. And one woman would reach across and pull the stone around in a circle, 180 degrees. And the woman, probably a family member, a sister or mother, would reach across to her and grab the side of the stone and pull it around another 180 degrees. And they would continue to do that until all the grain was ground, and Jesus says, no matter how close they are, no matter the relationship, even looking at each other in the eyes in a moment, one will be gone, one will remain. This is the imagery he's trying to get across to us. So he says, be on the alert, be ready for this. That's the theme that we've been talking about. How do we do that? How do, how do we actually get ready for this stuff that he's talking about? Do, do we go out and buy more guns Generators? Do we store up gas? Should we go build bunkers? Is that what Jesus is talking about doing here? Well, let's look for his answer. How does he respond to that? Verse 42, therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. So in light of the certainty, the absolute guarantee that God the Son himself is saying, it's going to happen. And it's coming, and it's coming really, really fast. In light of that, Jesus says, you better live ready. So we've got this phrase, be on the alert. Four words. In the Greek language, it's a present imperative. A present imperative means something that's ongoing, meaning constantly on the alert. Always ready. Not just when you show up at church, but constantly being aware this is going to happen. Now, in the Bible, watching is the equivalent of readiness. Readiness is the equivalent of salvation. So when he's talking about being on alert, he's talking about salvation. And when he's talking to Christians, he's saying Christians must be alert, even though they will be secure, even though they can't be snatched by Satan, even though they can't be taken away eternally, they have to be ready, And have absolutely no cause for dread because Jesus wins. I have read the end of the book. I know that he wins. But during the intervening time, no cause for weary, worry, or for fear whatsoever. Let's keep going. Here comes his parable, just one statement. But be sure of this: that if the head of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would have not allowed his house to be broken into if the head of the house had known. I haven't met a thief yet, and I haven't met too many thieves, but I haven't met a thief yet who will announce when they're gonna rob your home, all right? If they said, I'm coming at 1130, you're gonna be sure to turn on all the floodlights. You're gonna be sure to be home to prevent that. Our generation has excelled at being on the alert. We buy ring doorbells, we have spotlights, we have cameras to record porch thieves. We can catch that kind of stuff. We understand what it is to be on alert and to be ready. Now, Jesus is saying the generation alive in the last days, they cannot know the exact time, but they will see the signs of His immediate coming. What are you supposed to be on the alert for? You're supposed to be on the, aligned, uh, on the alert for the signs. All those things that we talked about in the beginning of this. So Jesus paints this image for us. He says, you will know with absolute certainty And the way that you're going to know is the signs. And when you see the signs, sometime it's going to happen very, very soon. Prepare accordingly. Now, to me, I'm just talking about Mark Kring, it it seems absolutely impossible to my mind that most people in the last days will not be expecting Jesus. That they won't be ready. I mean, how can they not be in light of the absolute horror that's going to be unleashed on this planet? How can they not? And that speaks to me of the power of the hardness of their heart. See, it's a really, really dangerous thing. This is what I've come to the conclusion on this week after studying this so much for years. She just really hit me. It's a very dangerous thing to be so absorbed in the things of this earth and so consumed with our life pursuits that we forget or more commonly, absolutely dismiss that Jesus is coming again. He says this to finish it out in verse 44 For this reason, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. So he has these two words be ready. I think that relates to you specifically this morning. He's referring to being saved, ready spiritually. Are you prepared to meet Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior this morning, or are you going to meet Him as judge? Here's what you don't want. You don't want to meet Jesus as judge. You want to meet Him as Savior. So I'm asking you this morning, that's what he's driving at here when he says, be ready. Here's the great encouragement to me. Even though those final days will be absolutely horrible, some will still turn to Jesus Christ. Your God is that merciful and patient. It's like the thief on the cross moment. Remember me when you come into your kingdom, Jesus. I tell you this day, you'll be with me in paradise. Last moment, deathbed salvation. You see the same things here. As bad as things get right to the very end, Just before the great and glorious day of the coming of the Lord, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And those aren't just my words. You know where that comes from? Acts chapter 2. Peter has watched Jesus. He's seen the resurrection. He's seen Jesus walk the planet for 40 more days after the resurrection, and then he sees the ascension into heaven And then Peter stands in the very same temple that Jesus was just teaching in 40 days earlier. He begins pronouncing to people what's going to happen in the last days. I don't know if you've ever looked at Acts chapter 2 through that lens before, but let me show you this on the screen. Verse 17, And in the last days it shall be, catch this, verse 19, And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness." and the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, here it is, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. See, God is that merciful, even right up to the last moment. You talk about a deathbed confession, the the planet, the universe is melting, and someone cries out, Jesus, I believe. Those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But Jesus is saying, so many people are going to have such hard hearts. Even then, they're going to be shaking their fist at God. But this reminds me that all is not lost. Even during the tribulation, because of God's mercy, there will be unprecedented revival on this planet. Multitudes will be won to faith in Christ. Just let that register with you. Jesus is coming at an hour when you do not think that he will. Circle back with me to where we ended last week. This is where we're ending today. Matthew 24, 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the Son of Man will come on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And the return will be as sudden as a lightning bolt flashing across the sky. And his return will take place in power and great glory. And it will come as a total shock. Shock even to those who are in relationship with Jesus. He's talking to his own followers saying, you got to be ready. you got to be on the alert. It'll be such a shock because his actual appearance will come lightning fast. And there it is. So he says, be ready. It's the warning of all warnings. Just two words, be ready. And when the return happens there will be no more time to repent. It is a decisive moment. It is the end of all things. No more opportunity to change your mind. The second coming has an unstated facet to it though. Hear this, history is going somewhere. These are not a random set of circumstances that you're a part of. COVID did not catch God by surprise. Stock market meltdowns, things like GameStop, whatever interruption came into your life this week, it didn't catch God by surprise. He's the Almighty God, El Shaddai Ashaddai, the God who really sees. The Almighty One who's most high. Yeah, he sees the most intimate detail in your life. That means you're here for great purpose. You have great eternal purposes. You're here for a reason. There will be a real end to this planet, just like there was a real beginning. And at the end, you will find none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He will be there. So in Matthew 24, Jesus is steadily fixing our eyes on the climactic moment of that return. Yep, sun's going to change, moon's going to change, stars are going to change, there will be earthquakes, there will be famines, and in the midst of that, complete moral failure all around the planet, a complete loss of love, the Bible says, but on the other side of the trauma, if nothing's made you smile to this point, this should, on the other side of that trauma... The return leads to the extraordinary wonder which dawns upon the entire universe when Jesus comes again because there will be a restoration of all things. All things will be made new, a new creation, a new heaven, a new earth, place of the home of the righteous, and there will be no more death, and there will be no more dying, and there will be no more disease and no more tears. Praise God. Praise the Lord. In that reality, let's pray. Father, I thank you for reminding us again of what's in store. What's in store on the other side. God, I I pray that as believers have heard this this morning, that we would collectively, myself included, Father, that we would be more motivated to invest in the things of eternity. That we would be using our time, that we would be using our money, that we would be using our relationships, God, to go deeper with you. So, Father, I pray for every person within the sound of my voice. Those of us who are here in person and those who are virtually part of this church, God, that we would be motivated this week to engage with our family members and our friends. Because the reality that you're spilling out for us is intense intense. And real. and we're not ashamed of that. So, Father, as we're not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, translate that into boldness, boldness through us, that you would use us to advance your kingdom. I pray for that, Father. I pray for that boldness on behalf of this church. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the witness of this church. God, I pray now that you would send us out with your blessing. Bless us for having studied your word and spent time together in fellowship together as believers. We pray for this in Jesus' matchless name. And all God's people said, have a great week, New Hope.